Thank you, Andy. If you've got a Bible, keep it open to John chapter 18 and 19. If you don't have one with you today, uh, there's a blue one in front of you nearby. Grab it and turn to page 755. We want you to know that, that we're not giving you our, our opinion around here. We're taking everything directly from the Word. And so we love, we love when you follow along in the sermons. Um, thanks also, uh, Seth, Emily, and Chelsea, for stepping out of your comfort zone uh, and leading our church so well. I'm super grateful for that. And um, let's just start this with a quick word of prayer. So let's pray. God, we're grateful for the body of Christ this morning. We're grateful for the chance to be here among your people, uh, to be in this place to celebrate uh, with the black family, the, the baptism of Aiden, to, to worship you, to give back to you, to come to your table, and now, Lord, to, just to open your word. And so, God, we just pray that it would not return to you void as you promised it won't, that you would, that you would move and speak uh, in, in ways beyond what we could even ask or imagine over these next few moments. And we ask this humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, there's a man by the name of Christian Herter who was the governor of Massachusetts from the years 1953 to 1957. And during his time as governor, he began campaigning for a second term. And during this campaign, he began working really long hours just trying to go out and obtain every vote he could because the polls weren't really looking good in his favor. And so one day he'd been so busy that just out campaigning that he didn't have time for breakfast or lunch. And that afternoon, his campaign had scheduled him to be at a church barbecue, which was perfect because he was starving. And so he arrived at the event, and he grabbed a plate, and he worked his way down the serving line. And when he got to the lady who was serving chicken, he held out his plate, and she gave him one piece of chicken. Excuse me, the governor said. Do you, do you mind if I have another piece of chicken? Sorry, the woman told him. I'm supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. But, but I'm starved, the governor said. She said, sorry, one to a customer. Now, as at this point, the governor, that governor heard her did something that no one should ever do. He became that guy. Listen, you don't ever want to be that guy. You know what he said? Do you know who I am? Now, if you ever get to a point where you feel the temptation to ask, do you know who I am? First, hear this from me. Congratulations on whatever level of success you've achieved. But don't ever be that guy. Okay? Do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. To which the woman said, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of chicken. Move along. And if I'd been alive in Massachusetts in the 1950s, I'd have voted for that lady. <laughs> you see, one of the foundational pillars of creation that is set in place by God is authority. Right? Because as human beings, we actually need authority. And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a need of ours that we resist more than this one, however. We need oxygen, and we, we happily breathe. I don't see any of you out there trying not to breathe. Right? We need food, and we happily eat. Some of us just a little too happily. Right? We, need, we need human connection and love. We don't shove those things away, but we have a need for authority. And in our pride-filled, sinful nature, we fight against this need. But it's still undeniable. Not only, the Bible is, not only is the Bible clear in this, so all scientific and sociological studies and experiments have proven this. That human beings thrive when they subject themselves to authority, and that authority doesn't abuse its position. The Bible tells us of several positions of authority that God has ordained and that he's put into place for the good of humanity. Government authorities and leaders, husbands, parents, employers, church leadership, leadership are all positions of, of authority that God has ordained as we're told in the Bible. And then the Bible makes demands on those in authority that they are to be fair, that they are to care and shepherd those they are in authority over. They are to be loving and not be burdensome. And these commands exist for two reasons. That number one, authority only works for the good of the people when it's used properly. And number two, all human authorities, no matter how big they think they are, are still under authority to a much greater power. 
Because there's one authority that rises above all the rest. There's one Lord above all lords. There's one king above all kings. And that there's one head of the church and that all followers of Christ must submit to. And that is Jesus Christ. And to unpack this awesome idea of the kingship of Jesus Christ, I want us to start by looking at the night before the cross. And the morning after. Because on the the night before the cross, there was a lot of gesturing and posturing and politics. But no one other than Jesus saw the irony in it. John 18 is where Andy started reading for you, and, we, and in, in reading that, we see two different authorities, and these two authorities believe that they're arguing over the fate of Jesus. And on the one hand, you have the Jewish leaders, and as long as they paid taxes and they didn't rebel, uh, the Roman Empire let them have authority over the Jewish people. And then on the other hand, you have Pilate, who was a Roman governor in charge of an area that included Jerusalem and where the Jews lived. And so what you have here are a governor and a group of leaders who both see themselves as more powerful than they really are. And both of them throughout this entire story will do whatever they can to keep that power. And the Jewish leaders hated Jesus because he threatened them. His popularity was reaching incredible levels. And his his growing popularity meant that the people might might not want them to rule anymore. And on top of that, Jesus was never afraid of calling them out. And worse than that, people liked him for it. And Pilate didn't hate Jesus at all. But what Pilate hated was the idea that Caesar could come in and take his position away at any time. And Pilate's job as a Roman governor was simple. Keep the taxes coming and squash any sign of an uprising. Any riot, any uprising that could work the people into a frenzy could then possibly be turned into revolt. And Pilate had already been warned by Caesar there could be no more of that in his region or he'll lose his post. So the first few verses that Andy read for you, nothing is getting done. Because Pilate and the Jewish leaders are basically having a standoff. They're basically arguing over who has more power and who has more authority. And both want the other one to deal with this problem. The Jews want Pilate to kill Jesus. They won't do it themselves. And Pilate doesn't want to do their dirty work for them. And so they're both basically asking each other, don't you know who I am? And the whole time these two JV weak sauce nothing authorities are flexing and posturing, thinking that they're trying to decide the fate of the greatest power in the universe, and the irony never hits them. And now we know from the other gospels, there are three charges against Jesus that the Jewish leaders presented to Pilate. The three things that they said that Jesus were guilty of was this. Number one, that he had subverted the power structure of the nature, nation of Israel. Number two, that he had He was teaching people not to pay taxes. And number three, that he claimed to be the Christ who was the coming king. Now the thing about those first two charges is that they were completely untrue and they didn't even really rattle Pilate that much. Because what did he care if the power structure of the Jews was messed with? And though it was important that his subjects paid taxes, he couldn't concern himself with one man telling other people not to, especially if he didn't believe that Jesus had actually done that. But this third idea, this idea of a king... See, the Romans knew what the Jews believed. Their belief was that the Christ, the Jewish Messiah, would come and overthrow Rome. Now, God never said that. Rome didn't actually believe it would happen. But it was a common enough belief that you can be sure Rome knew about and knew that many of its subjects were waiting for a king because even if the claim was false, even if it wasn't true, all it would take is one person using that belief to their advantage to start an uprising. So Rome is fully aware of this. And so when Pilate talks to Jesus one-on-one, it's that idea. Are you the king of the Jews that he uses to start his question? Look at verse 33. Pilate then went back inside. This is chapter 18, verse 33. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? 
Pilate comes right out and asks him the question. Here's what Pilate is asking there. Are you going to be a problem for me? Are you going to be a headache? Are you, are you going to cause some uprising? And Jesus comes back. I'll answer your question with a question. Is that what you think? Are you the one asking this question? Or is this just what you've heard about me? Here's what Jesus is saying. Are you worried about me, Pilate? Are you scared that I'm going to start some kind of revolution? Are you scared that I might be a threat to your precious little power? Or do you really want to know the truth? Do you really want to know who I am? And Pilate immediately gets frustrated with this. Look at verse 35. Am I a Jew, he replies? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Here's what he's saying. I'm sorry, am I the one on trial here? I'm not a Jew. I don't, I don't care whatever your claim is. But your people brought you to me and are demanding that you die. So tell me, what, what did you do? Why do they want you dead? Verse 36, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. There are so many awesome things in that answer. So I'm going to try to take them one by one for you. First, he tells Pilate, if there was going to be a revolution, I would have started one already. Do you Bible students, do you remember what happened earlier in the night when Jesus was was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, what, right when he's being arrested, one of his disciples, Peter, grabs a sword and he cuts a guy's ear off. Now, here's what that means. He wasn't aiming for the ear. If you cut a guy's ear off, you're trying to cut his head off. Right? Peter wasn't looking for a fight. He was starting one and looking to finish it. And Jesus rebuked Peter, demanded that he stopped, and then healed the guy's ear. And I bring that up to remind you of this. The opportunity to fight was there. And I want us to also recall that, that up to this point in John, Jesus has Walked on water, he's healed the lame, he's healed the blind, he's healed the deaf, he told storms to stop and they did, he caused demons to flee, he told dead people they couldn't be dead anymore and they came back to life. Which means this, if something's going down and he's on your team, you're winning. Because that's just how it is, that if there was going to be a war, Pilate would have known it already and he would have already lost. But that was not the will of the Father, so there would be none of that. Then Pilate tells Jesus, that, or Jesus tells Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. It's not from this world. He's telling Pilate, I don't, I don't have your political aspirations. I don't want the limited power of those Jewish leaders out there. I don't want your cute little governor role. I don't even want Caesar's throne. Because I'm already a king. And my kingdom is not of this world. And there's something far greater waiting for me than anything the two of you are trying to protect right now. Now look at verse 37. You are a king, then said Pilate. He's starting to get it. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. This, in this verse, Jesus is expanding the idea, introducing the last one. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world and neither is he. His kingdom is not from this world and neither is he. And, but he came into this world, and when he did, he brought his kingdom with it. His kingdom is not of this world, but it will be in this world because that's why he came, to establish the kingdom of God, and that kingdom will overshadow every other kingdom. It is not bound by space. It's not bound by national lines or treaties or control. In fact, Jesus says everyone, regardless of who they are, who's on the side of truth will be in his kingdom. All who believe rightly about God and what he's up to will be in God's kingdom, which Jesus reigns over. And this kingdom will last forever. It will not be overthrown or threatened or anything close to it, but it will last for all time and increasing glory. He's trying to get Pilate to see the irony. So what is happening on this, in these early morning hours is that the Jewish leaders are willing to kill Jesus to keep a little slice of the power pie, uh, power pie in the Roman Empire. 
And Pilate will, in a matter of hours, succumb to their demands because he doesn't want to lose his title of governor. And what Jesus is offering both of them is to join his kingdom that has unmatched authority and will reign forever. And they're missing out on that to try to keep their pathetic little posts. And in verse 38, Pilate just keeps missing it. He sarcastically says, what is truth and doesn't stick around for the answer. He goes out to argue with the Jews some more. And then this day becomes even more ironic. Because in an effort to satisfy the bloodthirsty Jewish leaders, Pilate has Jesus publicly punished. This is his plan to make them happy without taking an innocent man's light. So he orders Jesus flogged and Jesus is whipped 39 times with a whip that is designed to tear flesh off humans' body. And then Jesus is mocked by the Roman soldiers with the idea. They heard the charge. And so they mock him with the idea that he could ever be a king. And so they make this crown of thorns and they press it into his skull. And they put a robe on him and they yell, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slap him in the face repeatedly. And after this, Jesus then paraded out in front of, by Pilate, out in front of the Jewish leaders. This is to show them that he's been rightly punished, that he's been rightly mocked. And they should calm down. But his plan backfires because they aren't satisfied at all. It's like when they see one drop of blood that makes them want more because they realize they're closer to their goal. And so they just start screaming, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate refuses to do so. And that's when the Jewish leaders say something that gets Pilate's attention. Look at chapter 19, verse 7. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And for the first time in this entire ordeal, Pilate finally has an appropriate reaction. And the next verse tells us he's scared. Because you see, we, we all know, don't we, that he felt it. I mean, you and I have never physically been in Jesus' presence, but if you were, you had to feel it. It had to be impossible to talk to Jesus one-on-one -on -one and not sense that there's something different about this man. He stared him in the eye. He had a conversation with him. He knew that Jesus was unlike anyone else. And now these leaders are claiming that he is the son of God. And Pilate needs, or he claimed to be the son of God. And Pilate needs answers. He needs to talk to Jesus again. So look at verse 8. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from, he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize that I have power either to free you or to crucify you? See, Pilate needs to know. Is, is Jesus the son of God? He said, he told him his kingdom was not of this world. Could, could he actually be from heaven? All, and only all of a sudden, Jesus has gone mute on him. He's not answering any of Pilate's questions. He's given Pilate nothing to work with. And I want you for a second just to put yourselves in Pilate's shoes here. And imagine how frustrating this was. Just outside, he's got a crowd demanding the death of a man that he knows is innocent. But nothing he's done, no matter how brutal it's been, has satisfied this crowd. And they're getting louder and louder and louder. They're getting more and more worked up, and they're dangerously close to starting a riot. And if one or more of those have happened, it's Pilate who's on trial, not Jesus. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to kill a man that he believes is innocent. Now there's the possibility, at least this small possibility, that this guy is the son of God. And so what stands before him is an impossible decision in his mind. So what he needs, what he needs more than anything is Jesus just to clarify it for him. Just tell me where you're from. Just tell me where you're really from, he's asking Jesus. Only now the only guy with the information he needs has gone silent and won't answer him. And so in his desperation, in his frustration, Pilate becomes that guy. Don't you know who I am? He asks Jesus. 
don't you get it? I'm in charge here. I'm the guy who can give the order to kill you. And I'm the guy who can set you free. So you better start playing ball with me. You, you better start helping me because you need me to be a friend right now. And then Jesus utters the baddest line in all the Bible. Look what he says in verse 11. Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. Do you know who I am, Pilate? He says, I'm the reason that you have this little post. In fact, the only reason you have any kind of power over me in, on, in this morning is because I said so. The only reason that you stand here today believing that you have my fate in your hands is because I'm allowing you to do it. You have no power over me, Pilate, except for the power that I've allowed you to have, which really doesn't put you in charge at all now, does it? And then in all his power, Jesus offers Pilate grace because that's what real godly authority does. He tells Pilate this, that one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. This is what he's telling Pilate. Guess what? You're going to cave. You will give in. Because this is how it needs to go. I need to die because I have my own kingdom that I'm dying for. And when you give the order, you're going to be playing your part in the story. But the greater responsibility will be on the Jewish people, my own people who I came for and they rejected me. And I believe that Jesus said this line to Pilate for two reasons. I can't prove them, so don't email me about them. But here's what I believe the two reasons are. Number one, I think he was giving Pilate the courage to pull the trigger. Give them what they want. Give them what they're demanding for, Pilate, and the greater amount of blame will be on them, not you. And second, he was trying to offer grace to Pilate because he, here's what Jesus knew that no one else knew at that moment. Jesus knew that in three days, there will be an official who will come to Pilate and tell him that there are people claiming that Jesus has risen from the dead. And in that moment, all these conversations that Pilate had with Jesus will be running through his head over and over and over again. And I believe that this was Jesus letting Pilate know that at any point he could join his kingdom. He was letting him know that even Pilate's decision to, to have Jesus be crucified would not keep him from the grace that Jesus was going to buy for him on the cross. And that if Pilate would simply believe in Jesus, he too would be welcomed into this kingdom. Because that's the heart of our king and that's the story of our gospel. That anyone and everyone who repents, anyone who believes, is completely forgiven and made whole in Jesus. And from here, you see Pilate try a few more times to release Jesus. And then he did what Jesus knew he would do. He relented and handed Jesus over to be killed. And Jesus headed to the cross to realize the fullness of his kingdom. And here's what I mean by that. We're going to throw up for you something on the screens from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 6, says this. It's basically what we just talked about. Who, this is talking about Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is what we talked about last week. This is the gospel. That Jesus is God, but he took on the form of a man, and he died on the cross for our sins, and he defeated death by rising again. Now, now look at what happens because of that. It can, Philippians 2 continues in verse 9. Therefore, so it's therefore since Jesus died, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
So what we're told there is that because Jesus was obedient to his Father's will, because of the gospel, because Jesus died, he has now been exalted to the highest place and has a name that is above every other name, that Jesus Christ is King of kings and he is Lord of lords, and one day every single person who has ever lived will bow before him. But even now he reigns. This is what Colossians 1, we're going to throw these up for you too. Colossians 1 says this, this is about Jesus. For in Jesus all things were created, things, on he- things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is speaking of Jesus when it says, Then the end will come when he will hand over the kingdom of God to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, and all power. For he must reign until all his enemies are under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That is just a really small sample of what the New Testament talks about again and again and again. But here is what those verses tell us. It tells us that God has exalted Jesus to the highest place in all of existence. That Jesus Christ is the greatest power in all the universe. That literally everything is being held together by him. That Jesus is the supreme ruler over all. That he's reigning. That he's bringing every enemy of God into submission under his feet. And he's squashing them. And the last enemy that will be ruined is death. And when he does, he will be revealed to all humanity as the supreme ruler on everything. And on that day, it will be so undeniable that every single knee will bow before Jesus. And every single tongue will confess that he is Lord. This is not what those verses tell us. They don't tell us that he's like other religious leaders out there. They do not tell us that he's a good guy. They never say that he's a role model. There's no talk of him having permed hair or petting baby lambs. There's no mention that what he says we should do can be seen as suggestions or advice. There's no room left to belittle or minimize him. Simply put, Jesus Christ reigns. He reigns now and he will reign forever. And the only difference is that more and more and more people will recognize that he reigns going forward. And God has established Jesus as the great authority in the universe. He's given him the name above all names. He's made him the head of his church. And so here's how this truth, here's how this reality plays out here at FBN. Because that's what we're doing in this course here. We're defining our core values and talking about how they play out. And this is what this means here. It means that we pray and we preach and we teach and we love and we serve and we give and we act and we move in the name of Jesus Christ and in the name of Jesus Christ alone. There is no other name that we will praise. There is no other name that we will exalt. There's no other name that we will ever worship here. Because our role as his body is to make much of Jesus Christ because he really is that big a deal. And our job as his church is to tell you that you need to make him the single authority in your life. That your life simply won't be complete and fulfilled until you do. Because you have actually been created to submit and subject yourself to the rule of Jesus in your life. And until you do, you'll never be all that you were created to be. So yes, we are in the process of forming a board of elders for this place. You have a couple of pastors. But the head of FBN, our authority is and will always remain Jesus Christ. As your pastor, I am subject to his rule constantly. And as all of you who belong to him, you are subject to his rule constantly. He is our king. And I want you to see how this plays out in your life. Because of all the core values of this place, this one really is the simplest. It's the hardest to follow. But it's the simplest to understand. 
because it really just comes down to obedience. This is the core value that we will be tempted to fight against the most because we all want to be Pilate. We all want to be Jewish leaders. We all are intoxicated by this idea of control and power. I want to have the say over my life. I want to have the say over my body. I want to have the say over my money and my family. I want to give my feelings and dreams and emotions more authority than him. But all this posturing that we do, all this clinging to our own authority that isn't even ours, flies directly in the face of a theme that we find throughout the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul is writing, and he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus. 2 Peter 1, 1, Peter is writing, and he calls himself a servant of Jesus. James 1, 1, James is writing, and he calls himself a servant of Jesus. But there's only one issue there. It says servant in our English Bibles, only they don't ever call themselves servants of Jesus. The Greek word they use there is for slave. Paul says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. Peter says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. James says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. This is how they choose to identify themselves. In fact, this word is used 130 times in the New Testament. And all 130 times, followers of Christ are either identifying themselves as slaves of Jesus or telling all followers of Christ that we need to be slaves of Jesus. And in all our English translations, we have changed this word and translated to servant. And I believe this was for really good intentions. Because think about it, the word slave has become stained, and rightfully so. I mean, the horrors of the kidnapping, sale, and abuse of humans made in the image of God for the profit of white men remains one of the most despicable things in our history. Imagine yourself being a pastor of an African-American church and trying to convince them that they need to see themselves as slaves. There's a challenge there. So I understand the intentions of the translators. I appreciate them. But the Bible does not call us to be servants of Jesus. Because servants are voluntary. Oftentimes servants are paid. And here's the worst part. There's a connotation that servants are doing a favor for those they serve. And that's not what the gospel calls us to. And it's also not the call that grew the early church. Because Peter and Paul and James, they also lived in a day and age where being a slave wasn't valued. It's never been valued. Freedom was the most important value in the Roman Empire. To not have freedom, to be a slave meant that you were the lowest of people. And yet, that was the culture that they went with this message. You need to become a slave of Jesus. And his identity, his eternal nature, his power, his birth, his life, his teachings, death, and his resurrection demand that you do this. And because he left heaven and came to die for you, this is what they invited people to. This is what the first church's message was. We invite you to give up your independence. We invite you to give up your freedom and submit yourself totally to his will. We invite you to abandon all your rights and be controlled by the Lord Jesus because that is kingship. He is our master. He owns me, and in that I'm free. And they were serious about this. So seriously that they willingly identified themselves as slaves. And get this, James was actually Jesus' half-brother. He grew up with them. Can you imagine how frustrating that was? Like how many times he was probably unfairly compared with Jesus? Why can't you be more like your brother, right? And listen, I love my brothers. I've got two of them. There's no way I'm ever identifying myself as a slave of theirs. It's never happening. Yet here we have James in his letter saying, I'm a slave of my brother, Jesus Christ. Because they believe that's what the gospel demands, because that's what Jesus demanded. Luke chapter 9, he said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Listen to that language, that's cost. 
That's abandoning my rights. That's, that's losing my life. That's giving him control. That's him owning me. And so that's what we believe. And that's what we're going to teach. And that's what we're, we're going to call you to here at FBN. And so the million-dollar question is this. What does that look like? How does that play out in your life? And I'll tell you it again. It's a lot simpler than you think. We have two jobs as slaves of Jesus. Number one, we do what he says. And number two, we do what pleases him. That's it. John chapter 14, Jesus said, if, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. In his word, we have direct and clear commands from Jesus. So we must read and learn God's word, and then it's simple. Just do what he says. Outside of that, there are situations that will come up in your life that do not have a direct, clear command from the word of God. So in all those, you need to do what would please him. So as we get to know our king, we get to know what would make him happy, we pursue those things. I want to make this clear and as simple as I can for you. I want to give you an exercise that I put into practice this past week to help prepare for this message. And I'll warn you now, it got really frustrating at times. But it was worth it. And the practice is this, just go throughout your day asking yourself this question, what does it mean in this moment that Jesus is my king? Here's a really small, silly example. I was at the grocery store in this week and I was in a hurry. Seems like I'm always in a hurry, which bothers me because Jesus never seemed to be in a hurry in the Gospels. But I was in a hurry, so I get my groceries, I go, I push my cart out to the car, which is way back in the back of the parking lot. I throw the bags in, and it's time to go. I've got to meet, I've got to get going, I've got to leave, and so now I've got a choice to make. I could wheel the cart back and leave it where it's supposed to be, or I could just hop in the car and take off because my schedule demanded it, Right? And I looked around, I saw several other people have done this. They just drove off and left their cars. So I wouldn't be the only one. And then the question, what does it mean that Jesus is my king right now? And so I pondered that and I decided that King Jesus really wanted the cart guy to have a job. And so I took off and left it there. <laughs> I'm kidding, I didn't actually do that. I pushed it back, right? You see, what does it mean? What does it mean? That Jesus is king and that you are his slave. Well, you do what he says and you do what pleases him. For instance, men, there, there are direct commands in the Bible. Couldn't be clearer that you are to be the spiritual leader of your home. Parents, there are clear commands in the Bible that it's you who are to point your children to Jesus. It's you who are to teach them his word. So as slaves of our king, we're to, we're to do those things. On top of that, the Bible tells us that, that God ordained marriage. Marriage came first and then children. And so mom and dad, your children are always better off when your marriage is strong and thriving. So as slaves of Jesus, here's what we're called to do. As we set up our home, we keep Jesus as king of our families. We belong to him first and foremost. And secondly, we follow this really helpful formula. Marriage first, family second, individual child third. So when you make decisions as a family, when you decide what you will do as a family, what you commit your kids to, what you need to ask is, what does it mean that Jesus is king of our family? Because what's so often happening in our day now is we are putting the individual child first. We say things, well, we just want our kids to have it better than we did, which is a nice notion. What happens is this plays out where, where if little Johnny wants to play baseball, then he plays. And it's not just on the local team, but then he wants to play an all-stars. So he plays an all-stars. And then he wants to play in the travel team. And then he wants to play multiple nights a week and on, on weekends. And so what happens is the entire family is uprooted. Tons of money is being spent on hotels. Other kids are dragged along or left with grandparents or babysitters. And church and time together as a family and serving the kingdom of God and, and this kingdom of Jesus is sacrificed at the altar of Johnny's baseball. 
And then Jesus doesn't look like king anymore. And marriage isn't first. And the family isn't second. But the individual child is elevated to a place that he or she should never be. And you can email me on that one. Because you all know I love sports. But there's a way to enjoy them. There's a way to let your family enjoy them. There's a way to let your kids be a part of them without sacrificing the kingship of Jesus and getting your priorities out of whack. And this applies to band, it applies to music, it applies to art, it applies to any hobby or interest your child has. When it comes to setting your schedule, the Bible demands that you're a slave of Jesus. So your schedule just can't be full of whatever you want to do. Here's another exercise. Go home this afternoon. Get out your calendar, open your phone, whatever it is. Look at your calendar, look at your schedule and ask yourself this question. What is actually scheduled in my life? What is actually given priority in my life that has to do with building the kingdom of God? How much of my time is actually given to investing in people and being the light of Jesus? What is on your schedule that is there that is designed just to increase your your enjoyment and delight in Jesus? You see, recreation and entertainment are, are their gifts from God. They're, they're meant to bring us join Him, but man, we can abuse them. And if far too much of your day is given to your favorite sports team, or video games, or movies, or the golf course, or camping, or hunting, or shopping, or social media, whatever it is, you are putting the calling to be a slave, you're punting on the calling to be a slave for Jesus and trading it in for much lesser things. If there's anything that social media has proven, it's that when God asks us at the end of our life why we didn't do more to build his kingdom, we won't ever be able to say to him, I just didn't have the time. You see, being a slave of Jesus also involves your checkbook. Do you know that there are clear, clear, undeniable commands in the Bible that you are to tithe your money, which means you give a bare minimum of 10% back to him. This is a direct command in the Bible. It's for your good. So what, you, what should you do? Do what he says. Well, then when you do that, what about the rest of your money? You're free to do whatever you want with it? Yeah, sort of. Except you're called to be a slave of Jesus, which means that you do what pleases him. 2 Corinthians 9 tells us it pleases him when you're a cheerful giver. It pleases him when you provide for the needs of your family and then you use your excess not on yourself but for the good of others. It pleases him when you invest in people who are creating opportunities for the gospel of Jesus to spread. It pleases him when you're content with what you're given and not coveting what everybody else has. It pleases him when we live with open hands, not clinging to any of our stuff. We could go on and on and on. How do you make decisions? How do you set priorities? How do we view people? How should we shape our attitude? What should we do with forming our goals and our dreams? What do we do when he convicts us of our sin? It's simple. Do what he says. And do what pleases him. And that's our job. Why do you think the very first step that is demanded of those who believe in Jesus is baptism? Well, it's a litmus test. Have you accepted Jesus as Savior only? Do you want just all the free stuff, just all the forgiveness and all the heaven and all that stuff? Or have you accepted him as your Lord as well? Will you do what he says? So dad, when you get home from work and you're tired and cranky and your kids want you to play and all you want to do is sit on the couch and watch TV, what does it mean that Jesus is your king? When both husband and wife had a really long day and they're both tired and the sink is just full of dishes and neither one of them wants to do it, what does it mean that Jesus is your king? When you're in a conversation and someone's being criticized around you, only they're not there to hear it. 
And you can either engage in the conversation or you can end it or excuse yourself from it. What does it mean that Jesus is your king? When you're all by yourself and you're tempted to look at that website that you know you shouldn't, what does it mean that Jesus is your king? When you feel the Lord leading you to invest in a missionary, a mission organization, but you really want that new car with seat heaters, what does it mean that Jesus is your king? When you're with someone and, and there's, there's a door that opens, there's a door that opens in the conversation, you have a chance to share with them the truth of Jesus, only you're worried that they'll get offended or reject you. What does it mean that Jesus is your king? As you think about your life, as you think about your career, as you think about your checkbook, as you think about your home, as you think about your kids and your retirement and your skills and your hobby, what does it mean that Jesus is your king? Have you ever asked yourself these questions? Well, here's what it should mean. Whenever there's a direct command, we do what he says, and everything else, we do what pleases him. Because when we see ourselves as slaves of King Jesus, it's then that we are truly free. Now, we're going to observe communion together as a church. And by the way, do you know why we observe communion? Because Jesus told us to. And as we talked about, when your king tells you to do something, you do it. But as we do, the invitation for all of you today is this. Let's, let's be slaves of Jesus. I want to talk to those who've never believed in Jesus. And we're inviting you to him today. But I want you to know, we're not inviting you to become a religious person. We're not interested in that. We're not inviting you to become enamored with this place. We're not interested in that. What we're inviting you to is we're inviting you to give up your freedoms, to give up your rights, to give up control of your life, and surrender that willfully to Jesus Christ. There's nothing better that you can do with this life than that. So would you believe and surrender to him today? And if you have believed in him, I, what I'm about to tell you is not, it's not shocking. You know, don't you, that since you're still a sinner, throughout this life you try to wrestle back control from him. You know that there are probably areas in your life that, that you've kept from his rule, that you've kept from his control. You, you've not, I said, this one's mine, you can't be king over this. Listen, whatever those are, today when you come to the table, would you repent of those and give them to him? He's our king. We should do what he says. We should do what pleases him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you, that Jesus deserves to be king just based on his title, just based on the reality of who he is, just based on the fact that he is eternal, that he is God, that he is divine. But God, how much more is does he deserve to be king of our lives since he traded all that in to become one of us and to suffer and die terribly in our place? All to buy us back to you. And so God, the debate over whether or not he deserves it is over. He clearly does. And so God, first we pray for those in this room who, who have never surrendered their life to King Jesus. They never trusted in him for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. I pray that where they're sitting right now, they just say, they just pray to you, yes, Jesus. I believe in you. I turn my life over to you. And God, I, I pray for the rest of us in here who have done that. Or the thing with this value of you being king, it never comes down to what we know. We already know. Those of us who are followers of yours, we already know what you want us to do. 
Those of us who followed you for some time, we already know what would please you. But in our stubbornness, in our rebellion, in our pridefulness, and in our sinful nature, we refuse to submit to your kingship. And so God, may your spirit break us of that this morning. May around this room, will we humbly give you relationships and people and accounts and properties, children, families, and schedules, things that we've clinged to far too long and have not invited your say over. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. going to go into a uh, time of communion here, and uh, Seth is going to lead us in a song um, as we um, just come and take part uh, of the table. Um, if this is new to you, uh, this is something that we do uh, as believers, um, as we identify in the death and the body um, and blood of Jesus Christ, um, that our King uh, shed all of this for us so that we could have an opportunity at anything that Brett just spoke about. Uh, certainly so that we can have the opportunity to, to wrestle with the question of, of, of his kingship in our lives and how it plays out. So this is that time for you to just reflect on that, uh, to find yourself in remembrance of what Jesus did. If you're here and you've never put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ um, uh, and you're aware of that, you've never done that, then I, I invite you to just simply reflect on that, reflect on the words uh, that you've heard this morning. Uh, consider what your life might be like if he was king of it. Um, if you are here and uh, you, you've been a believer for a long time and uh, you've been struggling in any of these areas, and uh, my guess is about 100% of the people in this room have, this is your opportunity um, once again to come into remembrance of what he's done. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Um, uh, as uh, When Seth gets up here, he's going to play, and, and you come, you take uh, a cup, you take the bread, take it back to your seat, um, and there you can have a time of reflection, of prayer, of whatever you need, and you take it uh, kind of in your own time. There's a table up here. There's a table in the back. And so you come uh, as you feel led, and, uh, and that will be how we observe communion this morning.